the reading of the Cedar Rapids Gazette for Sunday, March 3rd, 2024. I am your reader, Sharon Feldredo, and we look at the front page of today's Cedar Rapids Gazette. CSPS shifts finances and artistic approach for second act by Elijah Decius of the Gazette. In Cedar Rapids, as arts and culture organization CSPS had been working its way out of deep debt for over a year, the challenge that would catalyze a new era for the nonprofit arrived a year into the pandemic. After CSPS failed to file tax returns for three consecutive years, the IRS notified the nonprofit in July 2021 that its tax exempt or 501c3 status had automatically been revoked, threatening the cultural staple's ability to function in an already challenging landscape for the arts. Nonprofits need donors, and donors care that their contributions could be tax exempt. But that wasn't all. Before long, a shocked board of directors slowly dwindled. By August 2022, all but then President Monica Vernon had resigned. A year later, the IRS restored the tax-exempt status, but about the same time, the organization's interim director left too. Money was getting short as the organization, started in the early 1980s, burned through all its reserves. With nobody but Vernon and the organization's small staff, the growing cry to call it quits suggested it was curtains for the organization, named after the historic Czech and Slovak Prudential Society. But with deep ties to the area, Vernon wasn't ready to give in. Some people said we should just shutter the whole thing. Someone asked if we should sell the building, she said, but I was feeling really bullish about CSPS. I think it's a jewel in the crown of the district down there. As the granddaughter of a Czech grocer who worked in the area through the Great Depression, Vernon saw the 1890 building in New Bohemia as a symbol of perseverance through difficult times. A place where grocers would hold weekend dances for a meager sum, it was part of her heritage. Now, with a new executive director, a diversified board of 15 members, and a detailed fiscal strategy, a new vision has taken hold to reset and polish the jewel for future generations to see, a place they can call their own too. I think we all learned a huge lesson to question, Vernon said, after CSPS started piecing together the steps that led to its predicament. So with her and a skeleton crew, the first thing she did was sit down with staff and ask for their suggestions. And they had a few, bluegrass events, hip-hop artists, and genres of art that didn't typically hold court in CSPS Hall. A lot of times the employees know more than anybody. I said, let's make sure there's never a dark night here, Vernon said. So they did, and we made ends meet. I think at one point we had $3 in the checking account, but we kept it going. They started focusing more on bringing in local artists and less on coaxing visits from out-of-town names who cost substantially more. In the meantime, some donors kept the faith. Even without the ability to deduct contributions made during the brief period without tax-exempt status, sponsors who knew and care often considered it a means of advertisement. I believe in communities. CSPS is such a bulwark of that community, Vernon said. You've got to keep these things going. With a more diversified board of 15 and plans to grow to 20, Vernon is feeling as bullish as ever about the vision that others are starting to see in CSPS too, a new era she and others are calling the organization's second act. Together, they've realized a passion for the arts isn't enough. Believing in the mission and vision of the organization means getting serious about financial sustainability. Scott Byers, president of the board, said the work over the last year has put the nonprofit on stronger financial footing than it has been on in many years. While this means a departure from the types of acts the organization's founders brought in, the caliber of names like Eileen Miles, Yoko Ono, and Annie DeFranco, it means CSPS can continue to be a cultural hub that supports the arts without compromise. Founders F. John Herbert and Melon Dringa, who are legends in the arts community, and Cedar Rapids, did the community a wonderful service. They brought in acts from around the world, Byers said. 
Those were expensive and they felt it was worth it, but we're not going to operate that way any longer. CSPS new executive director, who started November 2023, also thinks of the organization as a gem of sorts. Anybody who has been to an amazing event knows CSPS is one of the greatest hidden gems in our city, said Jason Zabornik, the executive director. My vision is to make it so that it's not a hidden gem. With a three-pronged plan that includes new talent, new types of events, and the energy to support new ideas, he hopes to inject fresh, fresh aspirations and a sense of welcome into the nonprofit's programming. An artist in Cedar Rapids since the late 1990s, Zamornik has worked with local, regional, and national talent through Nexus Entertainment Arts and 319 Fest. With a 15% revenue growth at CSPS in January, he's confident that the correction of business missteps is starting to better support the programming side. In addition to its new residential theater groups, new hip-hop, R&B, and hard rock shows have infused new life into the halls with audiences who weren't being served much in the past. But his job isn't just to book crowd-pleasers. With wariness of CSPS and the local art scene, he has to mend the connections with talent, too. In years past, some performers would scoff when he suggested doing a show at CSPS, a sentiment he sympathized with. Generally, there was not as welcoming of a spirit to the rich and local talent right here, and there was more emphasis on bringing things to Cedar Rapids versus supporting what's in Cedar Rapids, he said. Artists have had instances where they brought in acts that went well, that opened up new audiences for Cedar Rapids, and it was not either welcomed or appreciated. Calling the organization an incubator to new arts organizations, Brian Glick, artistic director and co-founder of Revival Theater Company, says CSPS is hitting its stride in blending big and small acts well. Revival is very much about having local professionals and bringing others in across the country. They marry those two things well, he said. A good balance of both is a sweet spot for us, but it took us 10 years to figure that out. For the past 10 years, his company has been a floating theater. Its arrangement with CSPS allows it to enter a new stage of maturity with permanency that will better support Revival's programming, education classes, workshops, and office needs. He thinks partnerships like this will be key to maintaining not only the physical space, but the space it holds in New Bohemia District. It's a win-win for both of us, he said. It's honoring the past, honoring what Mel and John did, and trying to reshape a future so that it thrives in the years to come. Also from the front page, schools flying blind trying to meet new deadline. Iowa lawmakers have missed their own target for approving state school aid by Grace King and Aaron Murphy of the Gazette. Iowa schools are preparing to publish the first draft of their budgets for the next school year in time to meet a March 15th deadline, but lawmakers already have missed their target for setting state funding for schools by nearly two weeks, and multiple other school funding considerations are still being debated. Linmar School Board member Britannia Mori said school districts are flying blind, attempting to create spending plans for fiscal 2025, which begins July 1st, without knowing how much they will receive in supplemental state aid, the money the state allocates to school districts. We don't know our main revenue source yet, she said last week at a board meeting. Like many school districts, Linmar is creating its budget and property tax rate around the assumption that the state aid will be set at 2.5% increase, as proposed in January by Governor Kim Reynolds. Lawmakers have a self-imposed deadline to pass the appropriation for the upcoming fiscal year within 30 days of the governor releasing her proposed version of the state's overall budget, a date that passed February 9th. Iowa House Republicans passed a bill last month, House File 2613, that sets the growth rate for state aid at 3%. That would increase funding for K-12 schools by $147 million, bringing the total K-12 spending from the state's general fund to about $3.8 billion. But Iowa Senate lawmakers have not yet settled on their number for the increase. 
A new law, House File 718, approved last year, requires school districts to turn in a first draft of their budgets to the county auditor by March 15th and set the maximum levy rate property owners in the district would pay for schools. County auditors under the law will mail postcards to every resident who owns property in the county that includes the proposed property tax rate, the impact the tax rate will have on owners of a $100,000 property, and public hearing dates. This potentially puts school districts in a position of publishing an initial property tax levy higher than what they would end up needing, said Adam Kurth, chief finance officer for the Iowa City Community School District. For a long time, I've been proud of the way we fund schools in Iowa and the equity-driven formula we use, Kurth said. The biggest liability of that formula is the fact it's not tied to inflation or any metric other than a political process that establishes what that number should be. The Iowa City School District, facing budget constraints and a declining enrollment, is planning to cut at least $7.5 million in expected expenses from its budget in the next two years. Kurth said in the district, every half a percent of state supplemental aid represents about $800,000 in spending authority. Last week, the Iowa City School Board was presented with several recommendations to reduce the district's spending, including, including closing Hills Elementary School, which would save the district about $1.6 million annually. Ultimately, with that SSA uncertainty still lingering, we can't say for certain whether what we've shared goes far enough or whether it goes too far, Kurth said. When we present budget reduction plans that involve making modifications to things like class sizes, a half a percent of SSA can have a huge impact. That could be the difference between offering something and not offering it. Senator Pam Yoakum the leader of the minority party Democrats in the Iowa Senate from Dubuque, criticized Republicans for not passing K-12 public education funding sooner this session. Yoakum said that delay has put schools in a pinch. Clearly, the House, Senate, and Governor, the Republicans are in absolute disarray, Yoakum said Thursday at the Iowa Capitol. This is just plain and simply politics, plain politics with our children. It's got to end, and it's got to end soon, because the people who are suffering from all of this are our children. Senator Ken Rosenboom, a Republican from Pella who chairs the Senate's Education Committee, countered by noting many public education advocates and State House Democrats have urged Republicans to slow down the process as they consider the different legislative proposals for area education agencies. Rosenboom said general school funding, the AEA bills, and proposals to increase salaries are intertwined, and that is what's holding up the school funding bills. This year is a little unlike most years because we do have the AEA matter, we have the teacher pay matter, and we have the SSA. And they're all wrapped up together. Practically speaking, they're all wrapped together, Rosenboob said. And that complicates the issue in terms of getting us to meet our deadline. Turning to the week in Iowa, a recap of news from across the state. Under the heading in the news, meat labeling protections passed Senate. Iowa Senate Republicans passed a bill last week that would prohibit manufacturers of plant-based and lab-grown meat alternatives from labeling their products as meat without a qualifier. Republicans said the move would protect agriculture producers and consumers. State Changes Special Ed Program A program through which special education experts help families navigate services for students with disabilities will no longer be operated by Iowa's nine area education agencies after the Iowa Department of Education recently announced it will not renew those contracts with the agencies. A spokesperson for Governor Kim Reynolds said the state is exploring contracting with another party for the service. House Passes AEA Proposal House Republicans last week approved a bill to overhaul the funding and oversight of the state's special education network. The House bill would keep AEAs as the sole provider of special education support in the state, but the funding would go to the schools first. House Republicans said the bill projects 
protects special education services for thousands of Iowa students who need them while also giving schools flexibility and transparency over how that money is spent. Democrats opposed the bill, saying they wanted to conduct a study before making any major changes to the system. State unveils job search bus. Iowa Workforce Development unveiled a new mobile workforce center on Thursday to take the state's job search office on the road. The 32-foot, custom-built bus, complete with computers and monitors, will take Iowa workforce staff around the state to career fairs and communities to help people find jobs. The $479,000 bus was paid for with federal grants and federal COVID relief funds. Conservative Curriculum Passes House History curriculum written by a conservative think tank that emphasizes a positive view of U.S. history could be coming to Iowa schools after House Republicans last week passed a bill to require the instruction. The bill includes requirements to teach the United States exceptional and praiseworthy history. Under the heading, they said, One thing was true throughout all this. Everybody agreed that there were areas to improve and that we could make changes. The AEAs have been included in this conversation more than anybody. We've worked diligently and I'm proud of the work that we've done. State Representative Schuyler Wheeler, Republican Hull on the House AEA bill. And there is no reason for the rest of the bill. The task force will do it for us. Then next year we can make an intelligent decision instead of a rushed one. State Representative Sharon Sue Steckman, Democrat Mason City, on AEA bill. Under the heading Odds and Ends, Caitlin Clark to WNBA. The Iowa Hawkeyes breakout star Caitlin Clark announced Thursday she will be turning pro and entering the WNBA draft at the end of the year, this year's season. Clark, the leading scorer in NCAA women's basketball history, had the option to stay another year because of COVID-19 eligibility. Arming teachers. Iowa House Republicans passed a bill that would create a new permitting process to allow school teachers and staff to carry firearms. The bill also would require large school districts to have at least one school resource officer in each high school. Turning to the Insight page, Global Change, Local Costs, there's a guest column from Robert Alt and Chris Ingstad. Robert Alt is President and Chief Executive Officer of the Buckeye Institute, and Chris Ingstad is President of Iowans for Tax Relief Foundation. They write, net zero banking would hurt farms. State agriculture officials from 12 states, including Iowa's own Secretary of Agriculture, Mike Nag, recently signed a joint letter to six of the country's largest investment banks, expressing concern over the bank's support for net-zero banking practices promoted by the United Nations and climate control activists. The reported concerns are legitimate, and ag officials are right to worry on behalf of American farmers and the households and consumers they help feed. President Biden misguidedly recommitted the United States to the Paris Climate Accords and has pursued many of the climate control policies previously sought by the failed Green New Deal. The administration hopes to reduce future domestic oil and natural gas supplies, make chemical feedstocks for fertilizers and pesticides more expensive, and track carbon emissions from farm to fork by requiring banks and agriculture investors to file Environmental Social Governments, or ESG, reports with the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission. The purported goal of these and similar efforts is for American industry to join Europe's ill-fated parade toward net-zero greenhouse gas emissions within the decade. As the Buckeye Institute's new policy report explains, Europe has been marching to this tune for some time. The consequences have been economically devastating for farms and factories, and there is no reason to expect better results here at home. Europe's cap-and-trade schemes limiting emissions made energy production more expensive. The added costs were ultimately passed along to consumers who saw residential and industrial energy prices raise 131% and 59% respectively between January 2021 and January 2022. Similar policies targeting manufacturing and chemical industries helped convince some German companies to leave Europe. 
the EU responded with higher tariffs and carbon taxes designed to prevent foreign-based firms from importing fertilizers and chemicals manufactured more affordably elsewhere. Once again, European farmers and consumers were made to pay. And then come the banks and the well-warranted concerns raised by Secretary Nag and his co-signers. The United Nations Net Zero Banking Alliance, NZBA, asked member banks, including six of America's largest, to require customers to measure, monitor, and share greenhouse gas emissions from their factories, farms, and business operations. There is no return on investment when Iowa farmers are forced to comply with initiatives like this one. As an Iowa farmer told us, the scary outcome of these proposals is that the government will dictate how you run your farm and how you raise your crop. These mandates prescribe more spending and cause more headaches, but they do not deliver any corresponding revenue benefit to producers. As the joint letter to the big banks warns, achieving net zero greenhouse gas emissions in agriculture requires complete overhaul of on-farm infrastructure, one of the goals of NZBA. This would have a catastrophic impact on our farmers. Proposed net zero roadmaps describe dramatic, impractical, and costly changes to American farming and ranching operations, such as switching to electric machinery and equipment, installing on-site solar panels and wind turbines, moving to organic fertilizer, altering rice field irrigation systems, and slashing U.S. ruminant meat consumption in half, costing millions of livestock jobs. Indeed, the Buckeye Institute modeled the impact of carbon pricing for a typical U.S. corn farmer under the Biden administration's proposed climate control regime and expects expenses for diesel fuel, propane, and nitrogen-based fertilizers to spike $65,000 per year, or 34%, to cover the operation's social cost of carbon emissions. And those costs won't stay down on the farm either. Americans already spend more on food now than they have in 30 years, but here, as in Europe, farms will share these higher costs with grocers, restaurants, and consumers. The average family of four will watch its household grocery bill climb another 15%, or $1,300 per year. State agriculture officials are certainly right to worry about net zero banking, an anti-farm environmentalist agenda, and the pernicious effects for farmers, families, and the U.S. economy. It is a good start for states to follow Iowa's lead and stand up and say something now before it is too late. And we also have a guest column from Jonas Magram, a businessman, writer, speaker, and musician, as well as a father, grandfather, and great-grandfather who lives with his wife Sandy in Fairfield. He writes... Iowans are being robbed blind by costs tied to climate change. We Iowans, or at least some of us, like to think of ourselves as better educated and even smarter than the average American. As it turns out, research by the U.S. Census Bureau disputes that we're better educated, finding that Iowans are actually well below average. But since there is no statistical data available for how smart we are, let's assume for the moment that Iowans are, in fact, smarter. Which begs the question, if we are all that smart, how is it that so many of us can be utterly oblivious to being robbed blind? In its most recent survey on climate change, researchers at Yale University found that while most Iowans believe that humans are causing climate change, only 37% said climate change has affected them personally. This is where the being robbed blind comes in. Take a look at these figures. In the early 90s, the annual federal budget to cover the cost of natural disasters was in the low single digits in billions of dollars. Today, thanks to the ever-intensifying storms climate change has brought, that budget has ballooned to about $70 billion a year. That's more than a tenfold increase. Who do 37% of Iowans think is paying for this? Taxpayers from the other 49 states? Then there's the mushrooming cost of our federal crop insurance program, which of course is vital to Iowa's economy. Since 2001, the program's total payments have grown by over 630%, from about $3 billion a year to over $19 billion in 2022. Why? The increasingly severe droughts and floods that climate scientists have long predicted. Who do we imagine is footing the bill for these losses? But wait, there's more. In a Des Moines Register opinion piece published last September, 
Jeff Minery, CEO of Iowa-based Grinnell Mutual, identified our climate's changing weather patterns and the more and more catastrophic weather events it produces as a major reason for the swiftly rising cost of insuring our homes. In 2022 alone, U.S. insurers paid out $99 billion in claims related to natural disasters, resulting in premiums increasing by an average of 21% in the following year. Oh, and let's not forget the Inflation Reduction Act's $400 billion in climate mitigation, an expense brought to us courtesy of big oil and its 40-year effort to hide what its own scientists knew, that fossil fuels are rapidly and dangerously altering Earth's climate. Last but not least, climate change is a major factor driving our soaring food prices by nearly 6% in 2023 alone. So what's the bottom line? Climate change already is costing Iowa families upwards of thousands of dollars a year. How is it then, in the face of the ever-worsening financial burdens, that a full 37% of folks in our state think climate change is not affecting them? Of course, they, like all of us, are constantly being fed big oil's lies through politicians and media more committed to ideology than to us. Lies like, climate change is a hoax, or it's unrelated to human activity, or it's nothing we need to be concerned about. Meanwhile, the four biggest oil companies, ExxonMobil, Shell, Chevron, and Total Energies, have made over $330 billion in profits in just the last three years. Surely, we Iowans are smart enough to connect the dots, aren't we? I guess we'll find out next November when we will either choose candidates who will take action to mitigate these climate change-driven expenses or hold, and hold big oil accountable, or cast our votes for those who are content to see us continue to be robbed blind. Todd Dorman writes in his 24-hour Dorman, letting lawmakers write history curriculum is a mistake. When my older kid was a sophomore in high school, she and hundreds of her classmates walked out of school to protest gun violence that turned so many schools like hers across the nation into killing fields. She carried a sign, why such a big gun, overcompensating? Clever girl. Two years before the walkout, she used another kid's cell phone to tell me her middle school was being evacuated due to a threat. I walked out of my house to the sound of wailing sirens. I drove toward the evacuation location, Low Park, not knowing what was happening. The threat was fake. Still, she was scared. I was terrified. So smart kids such as my daughter, who pay attention to the news, are interested in history and have have formed their own views about the state of the state and the nation, understood the need to walk out and speak up. No one told her to do it. She just did. Now, Iowa House Republicans are telling me it's radical leftists in our school who use civics instruction to push my kid into activism. Clearly, they have not met her, but they have a bill to fix it because, of course, they do. It cleared the House this week. House File 2544 prescribes what sort of civics and history should be taught to Iowa students, legislators writing detailed curriculum. What could go wrong? One thing they want to do is ban action civics. So what's that? According to Education Week, Action Civics' goal is not only to teach students how their government works, but to harness that knowledge to launch them into collective action on issues they care about. And its lofty goal is to revitalize democracy with a new generation of informed, engaged citizens. Well, we've got to outlaw that. The Education Week article talks about kids in Oklahoma for lobbied for accurate HIV and AIDS instruction, and middle school students in California who tested water in their school drinking fountains and convinced their principal to install a filtration system. Chicago kids convinced the transit authority to move a bus stop to a safer spot, and some more Oklahoma kids led the charge for an $11 million bond issue to renovate their school. Sounds great, but the last thing a bunch of middle-aged conservative legislators want is kids involved in public policy. They have so many funny ideas about guns, racial equality, LGBTQ rights, and environmental protection. After all, children should be seen and not heard. No Iowa school under the bill can teach action civics, and no state university can give credit for any course that teaches the value of activism. Iowa is following the lead of Ruby Red Texas, which outlawed any assignments requiring direct communications between students and federal, state, and local officials. 
Backers of the Iowa Social Studies Bill would bury civic engagements and facts to memorize, documents to study, and heroes to revere. Lawmakers get to choose. Middle and high school students will learn about Christian liberty in England and the American colonies. They'll learn about the civic virtues of famous people. Only two women make the cut, Susan B. Anthony and Abigail Adams. Although the list includes Ronald Reagan, Franklin Roosevelt is nowhere to be found, nor is the nation's first black president. The Holocaust is included in history curriculum, but not the failures of Reconstruction or the violent displacement of indigenous people. The Civil Rights Movement is mentioned, but not Jim Crow or anything about structural racism that has survived to this day. Neither the Vietnam War nor Watergate is mentioned, though I'm pretty sure they happened. Students will learn the United States' exceptional and praiseworthy history. Same goes for Western civilization. Somewhere, former Congressman Steve King is smiling. Do truly exceptional nations really have to keep saying they're exceptional? The concept that United States history shall be viewed as factual, not as constructed, shall be viewed as knowable, teachable, and testable, and shall be defined as the creation of a new nation based largely on the universal principles stated in the Declaration of Independence, the bill states. I have no problem with teaching from source documents and focusing on big events and key figures, but the idea that American history can't be questioned seems, well, un-American. A lot of language in the bill is cribbed from suggested legislation put forth by the America First Policy Institute, the Civics Alliance, and the National Association of Scholars. Trumpers' fingerprints are all over this stuff. Permitting a radical right-wing legislator to dictate what kids learn about history and civics is an astoundingly bad idea. They have no interest in turning out well-informed citizens ready to take part in selecting the best leaders for our democratic institutions. They want citizens who will not question conservative orthodoxy or current leaders waving flags. We're exceptional, so everything we do is magic. Our founders were clearly practicing action civics. Now activism is a dirty word unless you're trying to ban books, trample the rights of transgender kids, or dictate civics and history curriculum. One way to know for sure someone doesn't really understand history is when they tell you there's one accurate version of our past. Anyone who studies history knows the more you learn, the more questions arise. You'll find orthodox explanations don't seem to fit as you peel back the layers. And turning to the community letters and the editorial cartoon today from Tim Campbell, syndicated cartoonist distributed by Counterpoint Media. We have Mother Nature as a sort of frazzled-looking woman teetering on a teeter-totter that is currently dipping towards winter temps, but the other side says spring temps, and it's clearly a very unstable ball that's holding up her teeter-totter. The first letter is from Sarah Hardy Scott of Marion. Extending PPEL will help Linmar maintain great facilities. Resident voters from the Linmar Community School District have the opportunity to extend the Physical Plant and Equipment Levy, or PPEL, on March 5th. Extending the levy ensures the district will continue to receive the funding that has been available over the past 10 years. As a resident and parent of two students in the district, I urge voters to vote yes. These funds are essential to upkeep of our schools and are used for roof repairs, HVAC systems, replacement buses, as well as incidental repairs that may arise with minimal impact on our overall taxes. This is not a tax increase, rather an extension to what residents have already been paying for the past 10 years. We are fortunate to have extraordinary buildings and facilities at Linmar. Maintaining these assets is the responsibility of each of us and is investment in our community. Vote yes on March 5th. <coughs> Sarah Hardy Scott of Marion. Next, Tiffany Debeau of Marion writes PPEL Public Investment for Public Benefit. This past week was Public Schools Week. Public education, though not mentioned in our Constitution, has always been part of the conversation in our country. We have repeated documentation that the founders of our country believed education was critical to maintaining our democracy. In order to govern ourselves and maintain that right, we need to be armed with knowledge to do so, even stating that it was essential for what we now call the American dream. 
They felt that education was something the public should invest in because the public benefits from making sure that all citizens, regardless of means, could learn. Coincidentally, we, as Linmar community members, are tasked with carrying on that legacy by voting to continue investing in the PPEL fund, which is used to maintain and improve our facilities and equipment. This keeps our schools sound and comfortable for all students to gain that critical education the founders talked about. Based on the average home value in the Linmar district, the average individual contribution is less than $11 a month. I personally cannot think of a way that I would see a better return on my investment with that money in my pocket than what I see by sending it to the schools. Not only is it my children's future, but it is all of our futures. It is the appeal of our community and our home values we are investing in as well. Make a plan and vote yes to renewing PPEL on March 5th. Tiffany DeBeau of Marion. Next, Wayne Clayton of Anamosa writes, kids should learn the uglier parts of history. Hearing about Iowa Republican legislators' plans to teach history through their idea of patriotism got me to thinking about rainbows. We can talk about them factually, raindrops refracting light, poetically, Kermit, Dorothy, or by folklore, pots of gold. Falsely equating those three as dangerous bases for public policy decisions. Do we really disrespect our children that much to sentence them to grow up in a world where every chapter of every textbook we put in their hands should probably start out once upon a time? Just teach our kids the facts, good and bad. They have the right to know what has been done in our name. I promise the forefathers and mothers wouldn't mind. In fact, they'd insist upon it. Wayne Clayton of Anamosa. Next, Gary Klein of Iowa City writes, Iowa doesn't need private CPAs to do state audits. Iowa lawmakers are considering a bill to potentially bypass the state auditor's office by allowing state agencies to use a private CPA firm to audit their affairs. No reasonable person would want their tax dollars to be misappropriated, nor would they want a valuable statewide department to fall into disuse simply because it was politically expedient to avoid the watchful eyes of a dedicated auditor paid for by Iowans to expose fraud and abuse of power. Rob Sand and his department do a great job. Let your legislators know you think it is best to leave well enough alone. Gary Klein of Iowa City. Next, Nancy Kodros of Cedar Rapids writes, Education research must be shared. I am amazed that with all the feedback on the legislative proposal to change the AEAs, no one has pointed out none of the changes are directly linked to student learning, the supposed reason for the changes. Those closest to the student are the most vital to improve student learning. Yet there has been no discussion of ensuring teachers are aware of and using effective research-based strategies, nor has there been any discussion of ensuring students and staff have access to the newest adaptive technology. Instead of adding number crunchers to the already existing special education department at the state level, current staff could do research and discrimination of effective teaching practices and adaptive technology. This would at least have a more direct impact on student learning. Nancy Kodros of Cedar Rapids. And the final letter from Nate Stoll, board chair of the American Red Cross of Eastern Iowa. March is Red Cross Month. Help can't wait when emergencies strike, not for the family displaced by a disaster, the patient in need of life-saving blood, or the deployed service member alerted to a family crisis at home. Every day when our neighbors cope with emergencies like these, they rely on local volunteers, blood, platelet, and financial donors, and other supporters who deliver care and hope. This March, we are proud to honor these community heroes during Red Cross Month. If you're looking for a way to give back, join us this month. Visit redcross.org to make a financial donation, schedule an appointment to give blood or platelets, become a volunteer, or take a life-saving class. With a donation on March 27th, you'll be part of our 10th annual Giving Day to aid families affected by disasters, big and small. Nate Stoll, Board Chair, American Red Cross of Eastern Iowa. Some quotes of the week. The first, Lisa Williams, Iowa City School Board member, discussing the possibility of closing Hills Elementary, 
Lisa Williams says, we are operationally inefficient in several areas and we have to fix that. Otherwise, we have to cut our people and we have to cut our programs. To me, operational efficiency is going to be what I focus on. Next, Hills Mayor Tim Kemp speaking in opposition to closing the school. Why is Hills chosen as the sacrificial lamb? Next, Zach Bohannon, chairman of the Voices Inspiring Progress Capital Campaign, tasked with raising $6 million for the renovation of the African American Museum of Iowa at a ribbon-cutting ceremony, Bohannon said, During a time when history has been rewritten, forgotten, or even worse, erased, now has never been a better time to grow the importance of telling our state's black history. Next, Cedar Rapids Mayor Tiffany O'Donnell speaking in favor of offering city incentives to an unnamed company developing a $576 million data center on the southwest side. Mayor O'Donnell says, you hear me often say cities are forever. When you look at the timeline of Cedar Rapids, this will be its own bullet point on the timeline in terms of another massive development. And Scott Brook, a board member of the West Liberty Heritage Foundation, explaining the decision to move an 1841 stagecoach in to Heritage Park. This property has got a lot of significance because it was built before the state of Iowa was even a state. You are listening to the reading of the Cedar Rapids Gazette for Sunday, March 3rd, 2024, on the Iowa Radio Reading and Information Service. I am your reader, Sharon Faludo, and we turn to today's obituaries. Claire Clark, known as Buzz, age 83, of Marion, passed away on February 26th, surrounded by his loving family. Per his wishes, there will be no service. Buzz spent four years in the United States Air Force, where he served as a military policeman. Upon discharge, he joined the Cedar Rapids Fire Department, where he spent 13 years and was one of the first EMTs in the state. He was later self-employed. Buzz loved fishing trips to Canada and Minnesota and golf outings with his buddies. He had an incredible loving heart and an extremely soft spot for all animals. Murdoch Funeral Home and Cremation Service of Marion is assisting the family. John Lee Arians, age 24, of Sioux City, passed away January 30th. A celebration of life service will be held August 10th at 11 a.m. at Mount Vernon Community Bible Church in Mount Vernon, Iowa. Family visitation reflection time at 9.30 a.m. with a service starting at 11. A lunch will be provided afterward following for time of fellowship. There will also be a memorial luncheon on April 6th at 12 p.m. at Mount Vernon Community Bible Church in Mount Vernon. Please buy RSVP by April 4th so the correct amount of food is prepared at office at mvcbc.org. John served in the U.S. Army from 2017 to 2018. He graduated from Midwest Welding School and worked as a maintenance technician at Purdue Premium Meat Processing in Sioux Center. He was a member of Mount Vernon Community Bible Church. John loved singing and started out in the Metholarks at MV United Methodist Church and then in choirs in the MV schools, was in scouts and archery, enjoyed hunting pheasants and fishing. He was an avid reader, gamer, and really enjoyed t- spending time with his close friends gaming. He also loved cooking and baking and was active in youth groups at both the United Methodist Church and Community Bible Church and went on several mission trips and volunteered for Habitat for Humanity in Matthew 21. Norman Mathis, age 85, known as Norm of Marion, passed away unexpectedly on February 29th at Mercy Medical Center in Cedar Rapids. Visitation will be held from 4 to 7 p.m. Monday, March 4th at Murdoch Funeral Home and Cremation Service in Marion. A funeral service will take place at 10.30 a.m. on Tuesday, March 5th at the funeral home. Burial will follow at Cedar Memorial Park Cemetery in Cedar Rapids. Norm was self-employed for 43 years and had an incredible work ethic. In 1958, he started hauling canned milk for the Coggin Creamery for two and a half years. Then he hauled grade A bulk milk for Sanitary Farm Dairy in Cedar Rapids that became Lando Lakes and later Swiss Valley Farm from where he retired in 2001. Norm was very dedicated and strived to do the best for his customers, which was apparent as many were second and third generation families. 
He always took great pride in his trucks. They were shiny and spotless, as many would comment. Having lots of free time, within a couple of months of retirement, Norm started working at a truck company as a transfer driver, which lasted 23 years. He enjoyed his cars and pickups, dirt track races at Hawkeye Downs, NASCAR, and Iowa Hawkeye football and basketball. Morita Penn, known as Rita of Marion, died February 29th. She was born in 1951. She worked at Rockwell Collins. She was exceptionally kind and gentle person who enjoyed traveling with her husband and friends. She especially liked her trips to France, Italy, England, her ancestral homeland of Ireland, and Key West, Florida. Rita was a devout parishioner of St. Joseph's Catholic Church. She loved to cook and bake. Her pies were of particular renown and was an excellent hostess. A few of her other favorite things include spirited games of ping pong, playing Scrabble, watching Jeopardy, finding a good shopping deal, the occasional trip to the casino, and family and friends. Joanne D. Sell, age 57, of Marion, died peacefully after a long illness on February 26th in the company of her family. She Immediately after graduation, she spent time teaching in the United Arab Emirates and in Czechoslovakia. She was never a tourist, but rather a traveler. She led an artistic and creative life, leaving her painting and writing as the means to get to know her. She was an advocate for the blind and the mentally ill, and in her later years was employed at Abbey Center for Community Mental Health as a peer support counselor, talking on the telephone with those in need over the Iowa Warm Line. A celebration of life will be held Saturday, March 9th, at Marion Christian Church, beginning at 1.30 p.m. Patricia Lynn Bergstrom, known as Patty, a Cedar Rapids resident since 1971, passed away February 9th after a short illness at the age of 76. Patty enjoyed working in Lynn County's sheltered workshop. An Iowa Hawkeyes fan, Patty was particularly proud of her performance in the Special Olympics, winning many medals from the early 2000s through 2011. A deeply religious person who started life as a Catholic, Patty later attended Baptist churches in the area. For years, she taught Sunday school to preschoolers and occasionally sang in the choir. Her memorial service will be held at 10 a.m. March 9th at the Hilton Garden Inn, 4640 North River Boulevard in Cedar Rapids. All are welcome. Mary Catherine McGrath, known as Mary Kay, age 69, passed away at home with her family by her side on February 23rd. A private funeral mass was held at St. Wesleyan Catholic Church. A celebration of Mary Kay's life will be held at Ashton Hill Farms on Saturday, March 23rd from 2 to 6 p.m. Please wear colorful clothing. Mary Kay was deeply rooted in this city and her Czech heritage, and the Czech village had a special place in her heart. While serving on the board of the National Czech and Slovak Museum and Library, she purchased eight different properties with her business, Novak Investments, in Czech Village in 2018 with a goal to bring it back to life, fueled by memories of her childhood with her family when her dad owned the full-service gas station in Novak, Texaco, just up the road. Mary Kay's passion for Czech Village never waned as she brought her dream of sweeties and sweet mercantile, an old-fashioned soda fountain shop and candy store, to life. Through it all, she continued to work on new projects, Novak Plaza and the Roundhouse, which will carry on her legacy. Jolene M. Hoffman, age 64, born Jolene M. Slocum of Cedar Rapids, passed away on February 23rd. Jolene was passionate about working in the healthcare field and her patients spent everything to her. She was also an avid animal lover with her most recent fur friend, Dixie, being the light of her life. As per Jolene's request, there'll be no services held. A celebration of life will be held with family and friends at a later date. Kathleen Marie Berry Todd passed away February 28th, peacefully surrounded by family and her wonderful caregivers at Primrose Retirement Center in Council Bluffs, Iowa. Kathleen Todd was born over 101 years ago. 
During World War II, she joined the Navy to serve as a nurse for returning injured sailors. Ensign Barry was assigned to the Naval Hospital in Farragut, Idaho, until the end of the war. She lived for nearly 57 years in Cedar Rapids, where she became a leader in nearly every organization she touched from her home parish, All Saints, to nursing and teaching at Mercy Hospital, to women's business associations, to religious movements such as Cursillo and Ecumenicism, to civic charities like Green Square, to peace and life management at the Prairie Woods Spirituality Center, and many others. Kathleen was not someone who just joined organizations. She was someone who actualized them. One example of this was her time on All Saints Parish Council, a group which provided support and direction for the various local parish activities. Kathleen decided the parish should reach out beyond the confines of local activities, and she founded a relationship with a remote sister parish in the mountains of Haiti, providing much-needed financial support, but also taking teams from Cedar Rapids down to Haiti to lend physical and moral support. There will be a visitation on Friday, March 8th, at Cedar Memorial Park Funeral Home from 6 to 8 p.m., with a vigil service at 7 p.m. The funeral mass will be held at All Saints Catholic Church Saturday, March 9th at 10 a.m. Burial follows at Mount Calvary Cemetery. Thomas John Kramer, age 80, of Lisbon, passed away February 29th at County House Residence in Cedar Rapids. A memorial visitation will be held from 4 to 7 p.m. Thursday, March 7th at Cedar Memorial Park Funeral Home. Thomas was a hard-working man that could fix just about anything and took pride in keeping his K-5 Blazer in mint condition and restoring a 1950 Ford pickup truck. Tom spent his entire career working at Penford. Tom enjoyed hunting as well as traveling and camping with Pam to national parks. Lois Jean Sheriff Nay Dostal of Cedar Rapids passed away surrounded by family on February 25th at the age of 82. Lois worked as an inspector at Rockwell Collins, now Collins Aerospace, for more than 30 years. After retiring from Rockwell, she worked in retail at Von Maar. Lois was an incredibly talented artist and excelled at textile design. She belonged to a Red Hat Society group focused on quilting and enjoyed the many friends she made there. A celebration of life will be held on March 16th, location and time TBA. John Robert Herder, age 88, of Cedar Rapids, passed away peacefully at Meadowview Memory Care Village in Cedar Rapids on February 21st. Funeral Mass, Tuesday, March 5th at 10 a.m. at St. Jude Catholic Church in Cedar Rapids by Reverend Jim Brockman. Friends may visit with the family from 4 to 7 p.m. Monday, March 4th at Tian Funeral Home, where a rosary will be recited by the Knights of Columbus at 4 p.m. Visitation will also be held at St. Jude on Tuesday after 9 a.m. Shirley, Shirley Dothart, age 87, of Shellsburg, passed away peacefully on February 29th at her home with her family by her side. Funeral services will be held at 10.30 a.m. Wednesday, March 6th at Springs of Life Church, 2326th Street Northwest in Cedar Rapids, with Reverends Marty Angelita Schminke and Shad and Lindsay Garrison officiating. Visitation will be held from 9.30 a.m. until service time at the church. A private family interment will be held at Oakwood Cemetery in Shellsburg following a meal at the church. Shirley was a longtime teacher at Cedar Rapids Christian School. She was very active in the Foursquare Church throughout her life. She played piano and was a choir director for many years. She very much enjoyed directing the many children's programs held at the church. In her free time, she enjoyed gardening. Richard Morgan Steele, age 91, known as Dick of Marion, passed away on February 29th at Unity Point St. Luke's Hospital in Cedar Rapids. A funeral mass will be held 11 a.m. Wednesday, March 6th at St. Joseph Catholic Church, 1790 14th Street in Marion. The family will greet friends one hour prior to the service beginning at 10 a.m. at the church. Burial to follow at Cedar Memorial Park Cemetery with military honors. Richard was a member of the Knights of Columbus, the Cedar Rapids Moose Lodge, and the American Legion. He served honorably in the United States Army from 1952 to 1954 during the Korean War. 
Richard worked at the Chicago and Northwestern Railroad and proudly retired after 28 years of service. He enjoyed playing the clarinet for the Iowa Veterans Military Band, New Horizons, and the Collins Aerospace Band. He loved music, woodworking, vintage cars, golf, fishing, photography, traveling animals, and working on his computer. Scott A. Sanders of Cedar Rapids passed away February 23rd at Baywood Manor Hospital in Mesa, Arizona. A celebration of life will be held from 4 to 8 p.m. June 12th at Red Cedar Lodge at Wanatee Park in Marion. This would have been Scott's 90th birthday. A private interment will be held at Campbell Cemetery. Scott started working at Lefebvre while he was in high school, and he worked with them for 43 years and then retired. He proudly served in the U.S. Navy for two years. Norman Philip Kelchin, known as Phil, age 80, of Monticello, passed away peacefully on February 29th at University of Iowa Hospitals and Clinics. Massive Christian burial will be held 11 a.m. Saturday morning, March 9th, at Sacred Heart Catholic Church in Monticello, with interment in the Sacred Heart Cemetery. Friends may call after 9 to service time at the church. Father Paul Baldwin will officiate at the services. Getch Funeral Home has taken Phil and his family into their care. Phil started his career farming with his family and spent much of his life as a truck driver. He held positions in the construction trades and retired from energy manufacturing. He served on the Monticello Ambulance and was a Monticello Volunteer Firefighter for 12 years. Ronald M. Rochar of Cedar Rapids, formerly of Vinton, passed away peacefully in his sleep on February 22nd at Virginia Gay Nursing and Rehab in Vinton. He was 85 years old. Memorial services will be held at 11 a.m. on Saturday, March 9th, at Bethlehem Lutheran Church in Vinton, with Reverend John Albertson officiating. Private family interment will be held at Evergreen Cemetery in Vinton. Visitation will be from 9.30 to 11 at the church prior to the service, and a luncheon will follow. Ron served his country in the United States Air Force Reserves. He worked as a supervisor and industrial engineer at Rockwell Collins from 1956 until retiring in 1994. He and his wife moved to Daytona Beach, Florida in 2008, where he was a volunteer at Halifax Memorial Hospital and continued to live there until her death in 2016. Ron then returned to Cedar Rapids, where he worked for Elmcrest Country Club and was a groundskeeper until last fall. Ron's wish for attendees at his memorial service is that everyone wear Hawkeye gear or black and gold in honor of his favorite team. Turning to the sports page in girls' state basketball, the Class 4A championship crowned the Clippers. Top-ranked Clear Creek Amana completes 26-0 masterpiece by dominating Waverly Shellrock by Jeff Linder of the Gazette. Des Moines. Stop, Go Hawks. Thanks to some ferocious interior defense by Clear Creek Amana, the 1-versus-2 Class 4A girls' basketball championship battle of unbeatens was a no-doubter. The top-rated Clippers put a cap on a perfect season, 43-25 Saturday afternoon at the Wells Fargo Arena. This is what we played the whole season for, said the Clippers' Ava Locklear, named the 4A All-Tournament captain. We had a goal in mind, and we achieved it. Locklear and Bliss Beck controlled the paint, and the Clippers, 26-0, held Waverly Shell Rocks to 7 of 49 shooting, 14.3%. We lean heavily on our defense, CCA coach PJ Sweeney said. Bliss and Ava did a phenomenal job. That duo held their WSR counterparts, Caitlin Egany and Emma Thompson, to 4 of 29 from the floor. We talked about shutting them down, said Beck, who will play volleyball at Drake University next year. They're similar to us, and we tried to take away their high-low game. Come to think of it, they took away virtually everything. Then again, that's been the theme all week, all season. CCA allowed 34.3 points per game in state tournament play, 33.4 in the postseason, a 4A best 31.3 all winter. Props to Ava and Bliss, Avery Lauer said. They are such great defenders. I think our pressure got to them. 
We had confidence coming in. We knew what we needed to do, and we executed really well. Lauer led all scorers with 17 points and grabbed four steals. Locklear posted 11 points, 19 rebounds, and four blocks. Beck contributed 11 points, 8 rebounds, and 6 blocks. That trio made up half of the 4A all-tournament team. The rest of the squad consisted of Agina, plus North Polk's Abby Tuttle, and Sioux City Healens Melina Snoozy. Waverly Shellrock, 25-1, won its first two games here by four points apiece, but the Clippers knocked the Gohawks out of contention relatively early. CCA held the Gohawks to one field goal in the final 10 minutes, 15 seconds of the first half, and took a 24-12 lead into intermission. The Clippers scored the first eight points of the second half. Beck missed two shots under the basket, then turned to third in three-point play. Lauer drilled a three-pointer, then followed with a steal and a layup, and it was 32-12. WSR got no closer than 15 points again. A lot of emotions, Sweeney said. I was thinking about where we were 10 years ago. Now we've won a freaking state championship. I couldn't be more proud of these amazing girls. We pushed them hard, and they responded. That will win a lot of games. Also from the sports page, Mike Floss writes to her teammate besties, she's just been Caitlin. In Iowa City, for its 25 wins and 92.7 points per game and its flair and its spirit, the thing that struck me most about this season Iowa women's basketball team is this. There's never been a whiff of condescension toward her mortal teammates from the players Hawkeye coach Lusa Bluter calls a megastar, Caitlin Clark. There's never been a whiff of resentment from those teammates, especially those who have been indispensable in helping Clark pile up her crazy numbers. It makes for a senior day ceremony today at Carver Hockey Arena that will be the essence of bittersweet after number six Iowa tries to overcome number two Ohio State in its final game before the start of the postseason. It isn't just Clark who 15,000 Hawkeye fans will shower with gratitude after the contest. It's starting guard Molly Davis who has fit in so well and come on strong this season. It's center Sharon Goodman who fought through injury and personal loss in her career here. And it's the two old besties of Clark's and two big fan favorites in the last five seasons, Kate Martin and Gabby Marshall. Martin has played in 153 games and started 129. Marshall is at 156 and 127. Martin has met a rock. This season, she accepted a role with more scoring responsibility with a plum and has delivered 13 points per game to go with her smart, steady play. Marshall has 235 career three-pointers and 219 steals, quite a combination. She played 39 minutes in Iowa's unforgettable 77-73 national semifinal win over number one South Carolina last year without scoring and still had a great game because her defense was so vital. Clark has owned center stage since she got here. Martin and Marshall never felt overlooked. Both used their COVID-19 waivers to play supporting roles for one more season. Without them, the Hawkeyes aren't a top 10 team, even with Clark. I don't think I could have passed up another opportunity to play here and be surrounded by these coaches and these girls every single day, Marshall said. I'm super glad I came back, said Martin. I'm glad Caitlin kind of forced me to come back. Whenever Caitlin's light shines, it shines on all of us, impacting our entire team, our entire program, our entire state, the entire country. That's really cool. We want what's best for Caitlin and always had her best interest in mind. So we want her to get nominated for all the awards and win them all. We truly, genuinely are very happy for her. Clark has always praised teammates in interviews and kept them close to her instead of going off alone on some star trip. You can earn teammates' respect with performance and work habits, but you can only win their hearts by being someone they care about. Obviously, Clark said, the light shines really bright on me, but it does on everybody else, and that puts a lot of pressure on them, too. They never shied away from the moment. They always had my back. They've always been very supportive. Parting is such sweet sorrow, but this isn't the end. There's the Big Ten Tournament and then the NCAAs with first-week games in Iowa City. These Hawkeyes have made so much good noise, they won't go quietly in the weeks to come.
And finally today, the time machine, a look back at the people, places, and events in eastern Iowa. Grinnell bank robbery murders. Montezuma couple were suspects until their bodies were found. By Diane Fannin-Langton, correspondent. At first, it looked like an Iowa Bonnie and Clyde story, but it turned into something much grimmer. When the Grinnell State Bank was robbed the weekend of November 9, 1979, a missing bank teller became the immediate suspect. There was no break-in. The bank's back door was unlocked, but the burglar alarm was off and a secondary vault that held $62,000 in cash had been looted. The FBI soon discovered that the bank's bookkeeper, Dawn Kriegel, 21, and her husband, Daniel, 24, were missing from their rural Montezuma home. Dawn had keys to the bank and knew the combination to the secondary vault. In searching a couple's home, authorities found the lights on and unattended house pets. After five days with no clues, Dawn's mother, Barbara Wisend, contacted a psychic, Greta Alexander of Delavan, Illinois. Alexander said she saw Dawn and some others get out of Dawn's 1975 green Volkswagen and get into another dark car. She also said the outcome of the robbery would be different from how it first appeared to be. Dawn's car was found November 15th near a bus terminal in Des Moines. Daniel's family suspected something had happened to them. His brother Gary and father James tried an air search November 16th, but found nothing. Grinnell police also called in two psychics, one of whom reported seeing Daniel lying face down on the ground. The FBI requested that warrants be issued November 26th for the Kriegels on charges of conspiracy, embezzlement, and larceny of more than $60,000. Oddly enough, two other area families, both linked to the Kriegels, disappeared at the same time. Merle Bennett, age 36, of Brooklyn, Iowa, and his family went missing. Gordon Early Jr., age 23, of Malcolm, and his family disappeared as well. Bennett had been charged with receiving stolen property in a case involving the Kriegels. The couple reported their car had been stolen in Des Moines the previous May. After they collected $3,100 in insurance, authorities found parts from the supposedly stolen car at Bennett's auto business. Early was Dawn's cousin, had been accused of stealing the Kriegel's car from the Morrill Hay Shopping Center and taking it to Bennett's shop to be stripped. On December 3rd, hunters found a frozen body face down in a ditch and culvert southwest of Grinnell. It was Daniel Kriegel. An autopsy showed he had been shot several times with a small caliber handgun. The State Division of Criminal Investigation sent searchers in airplanes, on horseback, and on foot to search the area in case Dawn's body was nearby. On December 4th, Bennett was arrested in Lapel, Indiana, about nine miles from Noblesville, where he had been living and brought to the Powasheet County Jail in Montezuma. Authorities found, out, found about $62,000 in cash buried in his yard in Noblesville. On December 7th, the FBI charged both Bennett and Early in the bank robbery. On December 8th, two teenage hunters found Don Kriegel's body southwest of Marengo. She was lying against a barbed wire fence in a weedy area near a dirt road. Her hands had been tied behind her back and she had been shot multiple times. A firearms expert said that all of the bullets recovered from Don and Dan Kriegel's bodies came from the same 32 caliber Smith & Wesson Colt revolver. Bennett told authorities he owned that type of gun, but had lent it to Early and never got it back. Bennett made a deal saying he'd testify against Early if prosecutors wouldn't charge him in the Kriegel murders. Early's trial began in October in U.S. District Court in Des Moines and lasted four weeks. Bennett testified that Early had told him his cousin, Don Kriegel, had keys to the Grinnell Bank and would cooperate in robbing it. He said that when he and Early drove to the bank to rob it, Early told him he'd shot Daniel Kriegel, who wanted nothing to do with robbing a bank. Daniel's body was supposedly in the trunk of the car, and Don Kriegel was shot after the robbery. A jury found Early guilty in the Grinnell State Bank robbery and in the murders of Daniel and Don Kriegel. On January 8, 1981, U.S. District Judge Harold Veter sentenced Early to life in prison and recommended he not be considered for parole until he had served at least 30 years. 
He was paroled in December 2009. Bennett pleaded guilty to burglary and interstate transportation of stolen goods and sentenced to 30 years in prison. Daniel and Don Kriegel are buried in Calvary Cemetery in Brooklyn. That brings me to the end of reading the Cedar Rapids Gazette for Sunday, March 3rd, 2024. I have been your reader, Sharon Faldudo, reading to you from my kitchen table in Coralville. Remember that we welcome your comments on anything that I am choosing to read or not read, and you can access a recording of this or any other Iris recording at any time on our website, iowaradioreading.org. Thank you for listening.